I grew up in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. We didn't have a whole lot. My mom worked two full-time jobs. I never really saw, you know, anybody in my family go off to college and start their own business. And what's funny is when you grow up sort of that way, not seeing people be entrepreneurs and you sort of don't think that that happens for you, right? That's something that happens to other people, middle-class people, other people. Welcome to the I Make a Living podcast brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. I'm your host, Demona Hoffman, and I'm one of you, an entrepreneur who has come back from being on the brink of giving up many times. And I'm not the only one. Our guest for today is the most influential woman in DIY fashion, Mimi G. She's a proud Puerto Rican entrepreneur who has over 4 million followers across the socials, not one, but two million dollar businesses, and has recently been featured in Forbes for her rags to riches story, literally. At FreshBooks, we are proud to celebrate entrepreneurs of all backgrounds who want to spread their knowledge. Our cultural experiences inform the way we operate our businesses and communicate with our customers. And there's so much to be learned from exploring cultures outside of our own. So today, we're celebrating Hispanic Heritage Month with Mimi G, whose meteoric rise was built upon the culture of entrepreneurship and perseverance she learned from her family and her community. We'll kick off the show how we always do. Just simply tell me, how do you make a living, Mimi G? Girl, that's a, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> right? Especially in today's world, list. right? Um, like you said, I make a living in a lot of different ways. I license my name, so I have several different products. I have the online sewing and design school, so Academy, which is one of our biggest, probably the most profitable of all of the companies. And then there's Mimi G Style, where I work with a lot of brands, doing sponsored content, things of that nature. But I also consult with corporations on a variety of things, from like social media to diversity. I speak uh, a lot. Well, prior to COVID anyway, I was traveling a lot and speaking a lot. And then I teach, you know, I spend a lot of time teaching and helping people sort of turn their hobby, their love, their passion into a sustainable, profitable business. Wow. I don't even know how you had time to talk with us today, but I'm really glad because there's a lot that our listeners can learn from your story. And you didn't just start out at the top of your game. You didn't didn't have two million views on YouTube right out of the gate. <laughs> you worked your way up. So you have quite a story, Mimi, of starting out in a place that was very different. I understand that at one point you were even a homeless single mother, and then now you're a multimillionaire. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that journey for you? And was there a moment when you were in that situation where you knew, I can't do this anymore. Maybe I don't know I'm going to be a multi-million dollar, millions of followers style expert, but where you just knew what is the next thing I need to do? Um, yeah, honestly, you know, people ask me that all the time and I wish I had like some like, yeah, I had a moment where, but you know, that didn't happen. You know, I was a teen runaway. So, you know, I came to California, uh, at 16 years old, you know, I didn't know anything. Who did, who did, right? 
I didn't know, you know, you don't know nothing. You know what I'm saying? You're like, you don't know anything. You don't, you have no fears. You don't think about the day, you know, in front of you. You're just like sort of in the now, right this minute. And I came to California. I was homeless, you know, then I was homeless again. I was homeless three times, actually. Um, the third time that I was homeless, I was homeless with my oldest daughter, who was, I think, about maybe 10 months at the time. You do the best that you can. You stay wherever you can. You know, I panhandled to feed her. Unfortunately, my mom was moving from Illinois to Seattle. And on her way there, she stopped, found me in not the best situation and asked if she could take my daughter. And at the time I was like, no, absolutely not. You can't have her. I'm going to figure it out. And the day she was leaving, I looked at my daughter and I was like, okay, I, you know, I can't do this. I like, mom, listen, you can take her, but I need you to promise that when I'm ready, you'll give her back. And she said, I promise. So she took my daughter. Uh, she had her for three years. And during that time, things were not great, but I, at least I was able to work. I was able to earn some kind of a living. Um, I went in and out of really bad relationships, domestic violence, I mean, all sorts of, you know, awful things. But during that time, I was having babies, <laughs> trying to take care of babies. Once I started working, you know, I got married, I, I brought my daughter home, I started working. And unfortunately, that first marriage was not very good. And I ended up having to leave. But what it did for me was it sort of gave me a view of what I needed to do, right? I had this kid I needed to take care of. At that time, I had her sister too. And so it gave me fire to work and to do the best that I could. It wasn't really until uh, my second marriage, actually, where I was able to sort of settle down. I was working full time and I had an apartment when he and I met. Um, and, you know, although the apartment was great, there were still times where we were sitting in that apartment, me and the kids with no lights. I was like feeding them top ramen every day or we were having, you know, potatoes every day because you could buy a whole bag of potatoes for like three bucks. Right, right. But during that time, I was able to start working full time and it took a little time, but I got on my feet. I got married that second time. And that was really the point where I felt stable, uh, where I had a sort of a safe place. And that's when I started sewing again. I was looking out, you know, online and I started to notice that people were sewing at home. And I swear, I thought I was the only person still sewing. I was like, so? <laughs> Did you start sewing out of like necessity or was it just something that you enjoyed doing? No. So my aunt, she was a seamstress. And when my mom would send me to Puerto Rico as a kid during the summers to spend time with my dad, I would immediately go down the street to my aunt's house and I would watch her and she would make bridal gowns and formal wear. And I would steal like her little fabric scraps and I would hand sew Barbie clothes. And my dad saw that I had an interest in sewing. And so he bought me my first sewing machine. I started taking apart all of my clothes and copying them to make patterns. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And, you know, my, my mom and dad weren't all that pleased <laughs> at the time, but I was able to sew them back together. And I, I was teaching myself construction which I didn't realize at the time. So it was sort of just a hobby. What I realized that when I started picking it back up is that it was therapeutic. Sewing was sort of like a place where I could go when it was too much. I would have nervous breakdowns. I would have moments of like, you know, oh, I can't do this. You know, it'd be easier if I was dead. All mm. kinds of really dark places that you sort of go through when your life is sort of like unknown. Everything is up in the air. Mm -hmm. And so sewing became a way for me to feel safe and comfortable and to not think so much. So when I started sharing it, it just became that. I was like, I need a hobby. 
I was working full time and I started blogging first, I think was like 2008, maybe. I didn't even know what a blog was. I don't think anybody knew what a blog was. We were like, what? And you're working like in a totally different arena. I worked in film and production. Wow. So that's a pretty demanding job. And then you're still finding time to write a blog and so on the side. So, you know, what was great is I worked in film and production, which, you know, you guys know it's a long days, you know, sometimes we're working 16 hour days. Yeah. But part of that production time, you're sort of like, hurry up and wait. You're sitting around, they're setting up lighting, they're setting up the next set. What happened is I started sort of blogging and sharing what I was doing. And my boss at the time was so excited about the fact that I made my own clothes. When people first find that out, they're like, what? Like, they can't really imagine that you made this at home. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so he was very supportive of it. And I started to blog, you know, because I wanted to have sort of a journal of sorts that at the end of the year, I could look back and say, oh, look at all the stuff that you've been doing. And when I started to see that other people were sewing and sewing from patterns, I thought, oh, this is really cool. So I did it on and off. But starting in 2008, I think I might have blogged like six times in like two years. It was like, I was blogging and then I was like, what is this? That's how it starts. That's how it starts. Right. You're like, I don't know. Nobody's watching. Like, who cares? And um, in 2012, there was a shift. In 2012, I found myself sort of in a bit of a bad place again. I was working full time, but I was the sole breadwinner and things were getting really difficult. I was commuting three hours, you know, to and from work every day. Um, and I was, I was just sad. That's a big chunk out of your day, especially when you're momming as well, right? Exactly. Then you're like coming home. I got to make dinner. I was, I was just sad. I was sad and unhappy and I just didn't, I didn't know why. And although my job afforded me really great perks, like meeting celebrities, we got to travel, I got to leave the country. I got to do a lot of really cool things. It wasn't what I was supposed to do. And so sewing and the blog is really what helped me. And so I decided, you know what, you need something that is going to keep you accountable. So I want you to blog. I was talking to myself here. (laughs) I want you to blog (laughs) consistently. I want you to blog consistently and I want you to share your love of what it is that you do and see what happens. And I did it purely just because I wanted to share. I wanted to teach other people how cool it is to make clothes. I never thought about money because honestly, I didn't think that was a thing. Like who think back then anyway, who thought I'm going to write a blog and then I'm going to get paid? Like, (laughs) yeah, okay. So I just did it because I wanted to share. That's beautiful though. Like you're being driven by your passion. And sometimes that's better than people that go into business and are like, I'm going to become a multimillionaire just because this is the hot new thing. You're just really driven out of what you want to do. And also it sounds like your own sanity doing that kept you accountable, but also kept you focused on something outside of work too. Passion is what drives every great entrepreneur we've interviewed on this podcast. When you couple passion with persistence, that's when the magic happens. So if you know you're passionate enough about the talent you want to monetize, is it time for you to take the next step? According to Mimi, it will take a heck of a lot of self-confidence and the right numbers. After that first year, we went from like having maybe a thousand page views to over a million page views and then two million page views and then three million page views. And a year and a half after starting the blog, I quit my job. Like I literally woke up one morning and I was like, yeah, I'm going to quit. <laughs> wow. I'm going to focus on what I was doing. But the change was that I had created for myself my very first sort of paid 
online course. Back then, that was not a thing. Like people didn't have courses. People weren't doing step-by-step tutorials and putting them on YouTube. And so I came in at a really great time where the competition was minimal for me. And so I was able to sort of flourish in that area. And doing that paid tutorial, which at the time was a pain in the ass because I had to manually email the link to everybody. (laughs) You know, people had to download it. It was a lot. Right. All the tech technology and infrastructure wasn't really there. Yeah. Like that first video, there's no HD. It's like awful. When I look at it now, I'm like, oh my God, people bought this. Like it's (laughs) terrible. But they're not buying the production value. I'm sure also coming from TV production, you were holding it to a high standard, but they're buying the information. And obviously you were delivering it in a way that was easy for them to consume and be able to sew themselves. Yeah, well, at the time, you know, you had what you had available to you. You know, now, you know, our cameras do amazing things. Our phones do amazing things. But in 2012, you know, technology grows so fast, so quickly that just those things were just not readily available to me like they are now. But what it did do was it gave me the first inclination that, oh, wait a minute, I might be able to monetize this blog. And that was the very start of it. You know, within a year and a half, I was making more from my paid tutorials on my blog than I was at my job. And I was like, wait a minute, let me refocus my energy and my mindset and see if I can make a go out of this. Maybe I can make a living. And worst case scenario, if it doesn't work, I just go get a job. Yeah. It does take a lot of courage to walk into your job one day and just say, (laughs) I'm going to do it my own way. But I look at the world the same way, Mimi. Like if you have confidence in yourself, you know that you'll land on your feet somehow. And you really went through the fire. I mean, you proved it to yourself before from the situation that you were in, being homeless, being a single mom, dealing with domestic violence. And if you can overcome all of that, you know, not having a job, you'll figure it out, right? (laughs) But (laughs) but you didn't have to. It took off. And how soon did it become Sewit Academy? Well, Sewit Academy became sort of my second company, right? Because I I incorporated Mimi G Style and that was sort of paid tutorials, but they were very like sort of one-off projects. You know, I would show you how to make a skirt, a top or whatever. But Sewit Academy, what I found was that there were so many people sort of going to YouTube to find sewing tutorials. And that's great. But the problem is that you're missing so much information, right? I mean, like if you've never been on a sewing machine and you go on YouTube to try and make a dress and you don't know the before and the after, you're sort of just stuck with follow these guidelines, you're going to get frustrated and you're probably going to not want to do it again. And so I wanted a place where people could go who could not afford design school, okay? Because communities where I come from can't afford to drop 15, 20 grand to go to design school. And so I wanted to provide something that was affordable and that would teach you all the same things you would learn. So that's what I did. So at Academy is literally designed for people who have zero experience in sewing. You come on, you learn from the very beginning, and then every course builds on the last. We do pattern making, we do draping, we do fashion illustration. We do, I mean, everything that you need to learn to either do this as a hobby or maybe even start a side hustle, which so many of our students have done. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our listeners too. You said that the people in the communities where you come from aren't going to design school. Can you talk a little bit more about the community that you come from and how that impacted, I mean, you mentioned your aunt and how she sewed, but do you feel like your upbringing impacted how you're able to teach and what you're able to share with people today? I think so. You know, I grew up 
in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. We didn't have a whole lot. My mom worked two full-time jobs. I never really saw, you know, anybody in my family go off to college and start their own business. And what's funny is when you grow up sort of that way, not seeing people be entrepreneurs and you sort of don't think that that happens for you, right? That's something that happens to other people, middle-class people, other people. And What's funny, though, is when I think about it now and I look back, I'm like, there were so many people who were entrepreneurs in my family. I just didn't recognize what that looked like because my idea of an entrepreneur was like, you're balling, you have money, <laughs> you know, you have assistants, you're in Miami, you know, that kind of, you're exactly, a, that was my idea. <laughs> Popping Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but in reality, my dad had always been an entrepreneur, right? He was a carpenter. He worked for himself. He never worked for anyone. I have an aunt who had always worked for herself. And so I didn't recognize it. Now, uh, obviously, I can see that and I have a deep appreciation for it. Mimi's not the only one who grew up with this bias. Did you know that Latinx small business owners are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in the U.S.? According to a recent study by Stanford, the number of Latinx business owners grew 34% compared with just 1% growth overall for business owners in the U.S. over the past 10 years. Plus, these businesses contribute around $500 billion in sales to the economy. Many studies have been done on the way that our culture impacts our consumer habits and our relationships to our brands. For many entrepreneurs, including Mimi, these experiences even inform important business decisions. I think I'm always aware of how much value I provide and trying to keep it at an affordable rate so that most people can afford it, right? So that's always sort of in my head. People tell me all the time, you could charge so much more for Sewed Academy every month. And I'm like, yeah, I probably could. Honestly, I probably could. But I won't do it because that's not the goal, right? That's never the goal. We make plenty of money with Sewed Academy at the price that it is, and people can afford it. And I'm providing a service. And that's really the goal. And so I think now when people start these businesses and they see these influencers on social media and they're like, oh my God, I want to be a vlogger and I want to do all these things that all these people are doing. Half of that stuff that you see is fake. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like half of that stuff is not real. The part that people don't show you is the part I try to show you that it's hard that I work nonstop. Yes, I have the luxury of working from home and I can stop to be with my kids. But it doesn't mean that I'm not still working at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, that I'm not up at five o'clock, you know, that I have to figure out how I'm going to pay the people that work for me. It's a lot of work. And a lot of responsibility too. Yeah. And I think that is a little bit of the entrepreneurial myth, you know, being an entrepreneur myself, I understand just what you, you were <laughs> saying. And I'm sure a lot of people at home are like, uh-huh, like five in the morning, two in the morning, <laughs> 10 at night, you work when you can find the time. And so in a way you have all this freedom because you make your own schedule. But I always say I'm always working and I'm also never working simultaneously. Right. <laughs> right. And during the pandemic, those lines are completely blurred. How do you, as a mom who I'm sure wants to be present for her children and wants to be a successful entrepreneur, and also you mentioned the people who work for you, making sure that they have an environment that's healthy for them to work in, how do you create any boundaries or structures or just keep your sanity when now the thing that you used to do to keep your sanity is actually your job. 
(laughs) I think I've been blessed in that I've been able to keep a really fine line between what I do for a living and my hobby. You know, sewing for me is still my happy place. I still schedule, I literally schedule time in my calendar for sewing just because it keeps me sane. But one of the things that I think it's important for people to understand is when they say, I, I want to start a business. I want to be an entrepreneur, but I work full time and I don't have the time. And I'm like, well, I started this working full time, right? I just woke up before I had to go to work. So I had time to do it. And I went to bed later. So I had time to do it. And so, you know, that doesn't change as you become successful in your entrepreneurial journey. But what it does is it gives you the ability to say, you know what? I'm not working today. And I have that ability, right? So sometimes, you know, I work nonstop for weeks and then I'm like, you know, I'm burnt out. I need a break. Everybody stop. And I shut it down for a week and I go on vacation. Fortunately for me, I'm in a business that my children fully understand because, you know, they understand sort of this social media environment. They're like, oh, mom, you're filming. Okay, cool. Let me, I'll come back. You know, oh, mom, can I be in this vlog? Okay, cool. You know, so they sort of like help me not feel so terrible that I work so much because they sort of like join in, Um, you know, they sit with me. Uh, when I'm working or when I'm sewing or they participate in some way. But, you know, the same thing for my staff. They know that they can always come to me and say, hey, we're doing too much. Schedule's crazy. We need to slow it down. And we do that because I think that when you work your entire life as an employee, when you become a boss, well, I would hope that a lot of people do this anyway. I I don't know that that's true, but I am so aware of what it feels like to be an employee. And I'm fully aware of how bosses treated me And so because of that, I'm always conscious about being fair and creating a happy place for everybody, not just my staff, but my kids, my husband, me. Yeah, that's (laughs) important. That's important. And the tone really does start from the top. And a lot of our listeners now are at that point where they're building out their company culture. And you really do have to think about what am I modeling? right? Mm -hmm. What am I modeling for the people who work with me? Because you can't say like, oh, don't be working. And yet, you know, you're, you're working all the time and they're seeing you. And then they're like thinking, oh, well, I have to work all hours just like Mimi G. I've started um, scheduling emails so that that it doesn't go out like at weird hours. (laughs) I just learned how to schedule them so that it seems like they were thought of at a reasonable time of day. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the, you know, benefits for me as to my executive assistant is also my best friend. We've known each other over 20 years and that could be tricky and the best thing in the world, but it really depends on the relationship of the two people. So for instance, you know, April knows that sometimes, I'm going to shoot an email and I'm not saying hello and I'm not saying bye. I'm like, I need you to blah, 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 blah. Mm. And it's, but she knows it's not Mimi in a thing, you know, being rude. It's just, she needs to dump whatever is in her head right now because she's going to forget, you know, mm-hmm. she knows me. And so she takes no offense to that, but I might email her at two o'clock in the morning. Like, Hey, I just thought about this, that, and the other thing. And, but she knows I'll ignore you until tomorrow <laughs> and it's okay. Right. It's it's having that understanding between the two of you. Definitely. That must be really hard, though, working <laughs> working with friends in some ways, <laughs> like actually keeping that boundary when you're at work versus when you're in friend time. D- has it changed the dynamic of your relationship? 
Nope, actually not at all. But kudos to her, honestly, because it does take a very specific kind of person. I have a ton of friends that this would never work, right? They could never work for me. (laughs) And I know this, but she knows exactly when she's my employee and when she's my friend. I said that to my husband. There was something that he was supposed to do for the family. And I was like, you wouldn't last a second on my desk. (laughs) But fortunately, he has no interest (laughs) in doing that. <laughs> well, you know, my husband works for me too. Really? What does he do? He's my creative director. He does all the content, video editing, production, all that stuff. He gets a much harder time than April does. Right? Was he doing that before? Is that how you met? No, actually, uh, we met at a fashion show. And when we became really good friends and when we started dating, I needed somebody to start filming me because I had lost the last person that was filming me. And so I said, listen, I need somebody to help me photograph and film. Are you up for it? I can sort of teach you as we go. He's like, yeah. So he started doing it. And about a year in, he was like, hey, I think I want to learn to sew. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay. So I started teaching him how to sew. And now he's the menswear instructor in the sewing Academy. What? Yeah. Wow. That You must have very powerful skills. <laughs> Look, I'm going to take one of the courses. If you can teach me how to sew, you can do anything. <laughs> As a dating and relationship coach, I don't see many couples who want to go into business together. But I do know that much like a business, successful marriages stem from passion plus a willingness to learn and grow together. Hashtag couple goals. Another item on the long list of things that make Mimi so inspiring is the way she's using her expertise to contribute to her community in the midst of this pandemic. You didn't just create one course and set in, forget it. Like you said, you have the menswear course. You even started a new course that is for DIY mask instruction video you have on your YouTube, right? Was that something that you thought in the pandemic, I just have to do this because people want to know it? Was it you felt like people needed to wear more masks and you could influence people in that way. What was the reasoning behind starting that video? Honestly, I wasn't going to do the video. I had read so many things sort of in opposition of each, you know, yes, wear a mask. Don't wear a mask. Yes, it helps. No, it doesn't help. Um, But when you're sort of the leader of this DIY community, we have hundreds of thousands of sewists that all sort of like when something happens, look to you, to give them direction. And so what happened is when they started requesting that masks be made for nurses and and frontline workers, they started messaging me and saying, Mimi, can you do a video? And, you know, the more messages that I started to get from people in the community, I was like, okay, I have to make a video. So I made the mask video and I knew that I wanted to make it so that it was easy for people to make, but I also understood that if people went to my YouTube channel, which, you know, we do a lot of free content there, but if you're in this, you know, find yourself in the middle of this pandemic and people are telling you to buy a mask and you cannot find one, the next option is for you to make it. Okay, great. Most people, which is amazing to me, have a sewing machine in their house. It's either in the closet or your mama got it or your auntie or somebody got a sewing machine. Okay. Oh, yes. It's in the attic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I, I wanted people to have the ability to make the mask. But I also knew that if you have never sat at a sewing machine before and you went to my YouTube and you tried to make this mask, 
you might have a little bit of trouble, right? Because you don't know how to set up the machine. You don't know how to wind your bobbin. You don't know how to do any of this. So what I did is I made the first five videos of Sew It Academy free. No credit card required. I just wanted people to be able to go on because in those five courses, you're going to learn everything you need to know to at least make that mask. So that's what we did. So we did the video, we put it on YouTube, but then I also opened Sew It Academy free of charge so people could at least learn the very basics to make these masks. And now, you know, so many people have made them. It's it's amazing. I'm thinking about that as an entrepreneur and as a business strategy. There's a lot of debate about what you keep behind the paywall, what you share with people, not sharing too much because then people are like, well, I'm not going to pay for it. But I'm going to just make a guess, Mimi, that when you did that and you allowed more people inside and got them excited about sewing, that then that probably impacted your sales overall, did it not? Our memberships went up a lot, actually, Mm. during the pandemic. Always going to go back to the fact that when you do something really, truly, honestly, because you want to help and be of service, all the good things that you expect that you want sort of come to you. But if you put the other side of that in front of being of service and trying to help, then then it starts to get muddled, right? Then your purpose is, oh, I need to make a certain amount this year. Uh, you know, I need to make a certain amount from this launch of whatever I'm doing. And that's sort of never been the driving force behind anything that I do. You know, I've been homeless. I've begged people for money just to eat. I still, every day, am so grateful that I don't have those worries and that my younger children don't have to go through that. Um, So that I'm always aware of trying to give back as much as I get from people. Mm. Well, that's very apparent in everything that you offer and everything that you share, your knowledge, your wisdom, your story. So Mimi G, before you go, I have one final question. I'd like to know what is the last piece of advice that you either gave or received, other than all of the advice that you've given us on the show, of course, already. Uh, actually, I just gave it to a mentee yesterday. I, what I told her was, when things start happening around you that you feel uncomfortable about, your job is to always be the better person in business, I'm saying. It's hard when your business is based on social media and people are behind a keyboard and can say and do whatever they want. It can be a place that makes you sad and insecure and can cause you to rethink what you're doing. And so what I told her was like, you know your purpose and you know what your focus is and just worry about that. And the rest of it just falls away. That's good advice, not just for business, but for life. In the words of the great Kevin DePore from the cult classic Mean Girls, don't let the haters stop you from doing your thing. Here's what we learned from Mimi today. Passion is the foundation of your business. Pair that with persistence and you'll be unstoppable. You know it's time to leave your day job when you have proven that there is a market for the service or product that you provide and you're confident enough that regardless of what happens, you'll survive. Keep up with your hobbies and the things that bring you joy, even if they are also the things that bring you money. We are the sum of our experiences. Look back on the way your own culture and upbringing influence your consumer habits. Are those principles informing your business strategy? They probably should. 
Friends, masks are still at the height of fashion, so definitely check out Mimi G's viral YouTube DIY mask instruction video. And if you're curious about sewing and fashion, do check out Mimi G Style and Sew It Academy. This podcast was brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. We have so many tools to help you financially during this challenging time. Please check out our exclusive offer that's just for our podcast listeners at freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L. Again, that's freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L, short for I Make a Living. Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. Our associate producer is Leo Shell Villanueva. Our producer and director is Paco Arismendi. And I'm your host and producer, Demona Hoffman. I'd love to connect with you at Demona Hoffman on all of the socials or at DemonaHoffman.com. And remember, never give up on yourself because it's your business. See you next week. <laughs>